You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. This episode is Forget with the program about the degree to which we can trust our memories. And I don't mean where did I park the car, that kind of memory, but episodic memory, autobiographical events and situations, and some so dramatic that we're certain we can play them back like film. Often this applies to big events in our lives, crimes, national tragedies such as September 11th and so forth. And we'll examine those scenarios later in the program. But first, a test of episodic memory. Our assistant Tanya Lewis and I arranged a small scene to play out in studio among the rest of our Big Picture Science staff, Seth Shostak, Gary Niederhoff, and Barbara Vance. It isn't dramatic, it's pretty ordinary, and I'm not even sure it'll work. At any rate, after it's over, we'll continue with the program with Seth as if everything were normal, and we'll return to the experiment later in the show. The idea was we asked two colleagues, Noah and James, from the SETI Institute, where our studio is based, to come in and record a brainstorming session with Seth, Gary, and Barb about the show. But that's not really why they're here. Tanya and I planted a couple of surprises. James and Noah are in on some of them, but not all of them. But Seth, Gary, and Barb don't know anything. Later in the program, we'll see how they recall what unfolds. We're flying by the seat of our pants on this, but then science is about experimentation, right? Hi, James. Hi, Noah. Okay, I'm going to do a little play-by-play here so you know what's unfolding. Wow, that's a pretty impressive cupcake. Yeah, so I got this cupcake downstairs. Uh, I don't know why it has this big spiky thing coming out of it, but it looks really delicious. All right, James, Noah, we've got you in here because we're kind of interested in hearing some of your ideas. For, Noah and James uh, are standing up talking to Seth, Gary, and Barb, yeah, who are seated. Noah is holding an elaborately decorated cupcake and pitching a story idea about tiny animals called water bears. And they can live in the most extreme environments. They've lived at like one degree... Kelvin, I think, which is like the lowest temperature that's ever been. Okay, but that's like that's frogs. kind of a subject uh, matter. I mean, what? I mean, you know, oh, I was just saying it's sort of like at frogs some in point, the desert. That Tanya enters until the they room. get wet, and then they come back to life again. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, I think it could be a great topic to cover. I don't know about a whole show, but. Oh, uh, I'm so sorry to. I guess you're in the middle of recording. I'm sorry, but um, James, Michelle was in the hallway and she gave me these balloons. I guess it's it's your son's birthday or or something. Yeah, thank you. It's his ninth birthday. He'll be very happy. Thanks. Noah has popped one yeah, of the balloons with the toothpick-like Jeez. thing that is sticking out of the cupcake. The shock prompts Barb to gasp and Gary to laugh. James looks visibly angry, but he tries to continue with the brainstorm. Yeah, well, how am I going to get another balloon? So, okay. Well, last night I was I was looking looking at the moon through a Now Noah is going to deflate the second the balloon. That, but um what I was noticing last night for the first time with my with my own son. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's got into me today. I'm sorry. <laughs> now you're just trying to upset me. <laughs> James takes Noah's cupcake, squishes it and puts it on the table near Thank Barb. You. There you go. How about that? Anyway. Did you just squish my cupcake? I did. Oh, I was going to eat that. And um, if you're interested in, in having something to present to the kids, I can definitely arrange that. Okay, that's the scene. Now, that at this point, Barbara, well. Gary, and Seth I mean, are shocked by Noah's bad behavior, but they're trying to keep the brainstorming sure. going, and they're trying to focus on yeah, what it is that James is saying. The idea here is that a small drama will help fix the details of the scene in their memory, and we'll see if that's true and what Seth, Gary, and Barb remember about Noah and James' strange visit. Now... We begin the program. Cue music. 
Welcome to Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science, our monthly look at critical thinking. And uh, you can tie a string around your finger for this episode, Forget With a Program. I'm Seth Shostak. Does anybody still tie strings around their fingers to remember stuff? <laughs> I don't think so. I think they use Post-it notes or they schedule reminder alarms into their Blackberries. I'm Molly Bentley. We'll look at the reliability of episodic memory. Those are the events in our lives that we're sure we remember like they happened yesterday. I have to say I have no recall of what I did yesterday. <laughs> also, eyewitness testimony in court and why, contrary to what you might deeply believe is true, Using Google to look up answers is not destroying your powers of recall. But first... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. Whenever our critical thinking faculties take flight, our skeptic Phil Plate is there to help them land safely again as was the case with the plans by American Airlines to include in their in-flight magazine and also videos on their flights an anti-vaccination message. Yeah, American Airlines was going to run an interview with a notorious anti-vaxxer named Meryl Dory, a woman who really doesn't like vaccinations. And if they had gone through with it, it really would have been flying the unfriendly skies, in my opinion. This was going to be, what, part of the in-flight entertainment in the magazine what? Both, actually. It was an interview that was going to be printed in their in-flight magazine, and it would have been run on those little TVs that run down the, the length of the airplane. Meryl Dory is an American who lives in Australia, and she runs the Australian Vaccine Network, which is a group that claims to give balanced information about vaccinations. But when you read what they say, it's really just a bunch of misinformation and just horrible stuff that's not correct at all. Blaming vaccines for autism and an increase in disease and, and all kinds of stuff that's really provably false. Well, how is this being presented? I mean, when I think of in-flight entertainment, I think of television shows, movies, not somebody offering a screed about vaccines. <laughs> well, you know, with these magazines they run, they have interviews and news and things like that. So that's not too surprising. And also on the TV, TVs, uh, they'll show sitcoms or whatever from network television, but they'll run sometimes what they call interstitials, little interviews, little commercials, whatever, and, and that's how they're going to air this. But when this hit the web, especially some blog sites and Twitter, Twitter I think was crucial for this, a bunch of people reacted, including me, I wrote about it, a bunch of people tweeted to the American Airlines Twitter feed, and there was a petition that got started that actually never needed to get finished because American Airlines pulled the interview before actually everything went live. So, in fact, this problem was solved fairly early on. Yeah, it was a real win for reality. Uh, I was thrilled. I wasn't expecting to get a reaction that quickly, but in fact, received a couple of tweets from the American Airlines Twitter feed just saying, yeah, we've decided not to run this. So it was great. And of course now, Meryl Dory is screaming how her freedom of speech is being suppressed. And it's like, well, this, this isn't really a freedom of speech issue. You don't get to run into a theater and yell fire. You don't, you're not allowed to run misinformation, especially stuff that seriously attacks health issues that we know are incredibly important, especially on airlines. There are a lot of places in this, in this world where people are not keeping up with their vaccinations. And when that happens, when a population doesn't have a certain percentage of people inoculated against a disease, that disease can live on. There's a pool of it. And then you can bring it back to this country. And we're seeing that happen with measles, with pertussis, and with other diseases that are preventable if people would just get their vaccinations. What was the reaction you got from American Airlines? Because, you know, they could take this stance, look, we're a private company, we can show whatever we want on our planes. If you don't like it, we know you have a choice in airline travel. In fact, on the Twitter feed, when a lot of people were asking American Airlines about this, they said, people have the option not to listen <laughs> to this thing that's running on their TVs. And of course, a lot of people responded saying, yes, we also have an option not to fly with you. And I suspect that hit home because that's it wasn't long after that that American Airlines recanted on this. Now, I don't know if saying that made a difference or not, but in fact, they were fairly polite and just said, hey, look, we're, we've decided not to run this. So in the end, you know, we win. Yay. But I suspect, Phil, that American Airlines really, in some sense, had nothing to do with this story, right? They just contract out the in-flight entertainment. 
they have the right to, to run what they want in their magazine, and we have the right to call them on it if that's going to be their choice. Okay. So uh, you would see this as a, maybe one small step for rationality, but maybe an important issue for humankind. Oh, absolutely. This anti-vax movement is dangerous. You know, most of these unskeptical movements, not a big deal. But in this one, we're talking about direct impact on the health of people, especially babies. And as long as that is true, then we are going to continue to fight them. Phil Plate, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Phil Plate is a skeptic and keeper of Discover Magazine's good blog, badastronomy.com. A flashbulb. Remember those? Before electronic flashes became so inexpensive, we used flashbulbs to light up a scene for photography. They'd go off in about a fraction of a second and kind of freeze whatever action was taking place in front of the camera. I used to use them in my early photography, and, and yes, they were actual bulbs. Flashbulb memory is a captured bit of action, too. It's a highly detailed snapshot of an event that was surprising or important in your life, from an accident to the moment that you said, I do, at the altar. And you remember saying, I do. But what else do you remember about that moment? I mean, you know, who was that woman in the second row wearing that orange hat with the ostrich feathers? I mean, was it really orange? You sure the feathers weren't peacock? And we swear by our memories. Aunt Shirley was wearing the most outrageous orange hat at my wedding. The car swerved to the right, and it hit that oak tree. I was sitting in the blue chair when he called with the news about the MacArthur Fellowship. Gee, he didn't tell me about that. (laughs) Well, we may forget where we parked the car or where we left our keys. But episodic events, autobiographical moments that have symbolic meaning, those are written in our brains with indelible ink. Only if indelible ink fades, says neurobiologist Craig Stark. He studies flashbulb memories and why they're highly detailed, but overall unreliable. Craig, let's start by you giving me seven random nouns, any seven nouns. I'm not going to write them down. It'll be clear why we're doing this later. Sure. How about window? Window. Reason? Reason. Car? Car. Locomotive. Locomotive. Dish towel. Dish towel. Raccoon. Raccoon. Rainbow. Rainbow. Okay. Since we're talking about memories and trying my memory, let me say that some of my memories are clearly more vivid than others. And in particular, uh, what occurs to me is something that happened to me a year or two ago. When I was sitting in my car making a cell phone call, probably shouldn't have been doing that, but I was, and I was in traffic, and I looked up to suddenly realized that my car was creeping up to a white pickup truck right in front of me. And before my nervous system could react, I slammed into this truck. Now, I can picture it all, the the reaction of the guy in his rearview mirror, you know, how a little bit of glass started flying and so forth. This is called flashbulb memory, is it not? Yeah, something like this. People describe a flashbulb memory as some memory that you have that comes from an event Usually it's an emotionally charged or arousing event. And the idea is that you have a complete storage of this event. Because of this emotional arousal, there's a very accurate storage of this event. The question really comes in whether it's immune to forgetting, whether it's immune to any sort of distortion. So you may be able to remember it now after a year or so ago. How much of it would you be able to accurately remember after five years? 10 years, 15 years. Well, it, it's very vivid, okay? And, and it's one of many vivid memories I have where in my mind, I see what indeed looks like a photograph. And presumably that's the origin of the term here, flash bulb memory. But it really, I mean, it seems indelible. It looks like it was tattooed on my chest or something like that. But you're telling me that my memory of this event might in fact not be terribly accurate after some length of time. Certainly, that kind of thing we've seen time and time again in the laboratory. Numerous researchers have gone and taken a look at big things that have happened. So the Challenger explosion, the Columbia explosion, the O.J. Simpson verdict, obviously September 11th was another one. And each time when they've looked at this, they've found the same kind of data. That after a little while, even a year or so, the memory can be just fine. But you wait a few more years, And that's where you start to see some real distortions creeping into the memory. Even though there never was any overt attempt to change the memory, 
the memory just drifted on its own. So, so my memories are degrading, even these vivid memories. I mean, I know that my other memories are slightly you know, unreliable. My, my memory's somewhat porous. But I, I would have thought that these, these highly charged events that I remember, would have been far more accurate. Uh, to begin with, why is it that we make this flashbulb memory in circumstances where you know, there's a lot of uh, emotional energy in the, in, in the event? We know that when you experience something emotional, numerous stress hormones start coursing through your body. Obviously, there's adrenaline, we get cortisol, we get a number of things, and these actually trigger mechanisms in your brain in a region called the amygdala, which really says to your memory system, hey, store this, store this more accurately. You know, do this or don't do this kind of thing again. Well, I, I have this idea that memories are, you know, like recordings, uh, such as I might make with my computer. In other words, that, you know, when I experience the world, my brain is operating like, if you will, a video camera. So whatever I see, whatever I hear, it's getting written somehow into my brain. And, and yet, you know, if I, if I actually did record such things on a video camera, that recording would be pretty accurate forever. And this is degrading. Why is it degrading? Well, it's degrading, well, in large part because that's not the right analogy. Our memory does not work like a video recorder or an audio recorder. Instead, there was a, one of the first cognitive psychologists, uh, Frederick Bartlett, said that memory is not the re-excitation of innumerable fixed and lifeless ideas. So it's not that you're bringing back a whole bunch of information that isn't changing, that's fixed and that's lifeless. Instead, it's an imaginative construction or reconstruction. And it's based out of a few details, which commonly appear in image or language form, and to a whole collection of our past biases, experiences, expectations. So really, as we're going along, we are filling in missing information routinely every time we remember something. It, it sounds like witness testimony is not terribly reliable, and yet reminds me of some cases in science where people claim to have observed phenomena that, you know, a priori don't sound necessarily very convincing, but they are convinced. And I'm thinking here of, for example, the 1947 claim that, uh, you know, aliens crash landed in Roswell, New Mexico or nearby. But that claim was made on the basis of witness testimony taken years, sometimes decades after the fact. Sure. So we have... We have a couple things we can sort of unpack in there. One is that to your brain, a true memory and a false memory really are pretty much the same. Your brain can't really tell the difference between them. So if you're remembering something that didn't actually happen, it's a false memory, but to you, it seems perfectly real. And so you can be having a memory of an experience that never actually happened, and yet to you, you will swear up and down, yes, this happened, I know, I remember. We can actually implant memories like this in people as well. And so to you, it is accurate. It's just that in reality, it isn't. <laughs> well, finally, Craig, you may recall, and I certainly do, that at the beginning of this interview, you gave me seven nouns. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to try and recall them now, although I'm already worried about this. Now, let's see. You had a raccoon, and I think there was a dish rag, and a window, and um, I think that's about it. Maybe <laughs> I'm not even sure of those three. Gosh, what am I missing? So it was a uh, it was window, reason, car, locomotive, dish towel, raccoon and rainbow yeah well three for seven so actually you said dish rag and in fact it was a dish towel and that's actually a really interesting kind of thing do you yourself would you call that in the kitchen a dish towel or a dish rag i would call it a dish rag exactly and that is the exact problem right there you had some little bit and piece of the information Oh, yeah, that thing, even the meaning of it. And you used your prior experience and knowledge to reconstruct what actually happened. It was a dish rag you thought that was actually presented. In fact, it was a dish towel. Yeah, it sounds like you're justified in ragging on me for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Craig, for uh, talking with us today. Certainly. Thank you very much. Craig Stark is a neurobiologist and director for the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory at the University of California, Irvine. Next... Order in the court. 
will be gauging the reliability of eyewitness testimony. You won't believe your ears. It's Forget with a program on Big Picture Science. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Skeptic Check, Forget with the Program. At the very beginning of this episode, a small dramatic scene played out. Our show's assistant, Tanya Lewis, and I arranged for Noah and James to record a brainstorming session with the Big Picture Science staff, Seth, Gary, and Barbara. But the scene was actually orchestrated with a few surprises to test the detailed recall of Seth, Gary, and Barb. Now, you heard that scene about 15 minutes ago or so, but when I brought the staff back to grill them like a cheese sandwich... About three hours had passed, not days or years as neurobiologist Craig Stark discussed in the testing of episodic memory, but maybe enough time to challenge the recall of the strange events. To refresh all our memories... Well, uh, Tanya, our intern, brings in a bunch of inflated helium balloons for James. Apparently, James had ordered these things for his son. It was his son's birthday, and it was very sweet. Meanwhile, uh, Noah has a cupcake with a pointy stick on it, and he seems to deliberately blow up one of these balloons. And James looked visibly upset. He controlled himself, but he was clearly upset. One balloon was popped, and then a second balloon was deflated later. Right. And then what, what happened? And Noah offered him his cupcake to quell him, I guess, and the first time James didn't take it, the second time he did, and then he smashed the cupcake. So, Barbara, you've now learned that everything that just happened um, was a setup. And how do you feel about that? Well, I was kind of annoyed that I'd been set up. You know, it was not a comfortable situation to be in watching the tensions and the what was at, seemed to be perceived, at least, to be anger and very strange behavior going on. Well, I really do apologize for that. I I didn't know any other way to do it but have to keep it from you all what was about to happen because what I wanted to test was your memory. When you saw an event that was startling um, and made you uncomfortable, what would you remember about it and what would you not remember about it? Okay, can I ask you a couple questions about it? Sure. I wonder if you could describe the cupcake for me in detail. The cupcake was, I'm going to say chocolate with white, frosting that looked like it had been piped on. I think it was white, but I could be wrong. Um, The cupcake was actually a red velvet cupcake, white frosting, red sprinkles, a dash of white chocolate with a long pointy cocktail stick that held a white tassel. This was a very strange cupcake, but I don't think I can describe it very well. It was very, very red. It had more topping than contents. It had a pointy stick, and it at one point had a bow on the stick, although that bow seemed to uh, go somewhere. I think the frosting was red and the bow was white. I would say it was a red velvet cupcake. It seemed to have white frosting, as a red velvet cupcake should. But there seemed to be sprinkles or something on the frosting. Gary nailed the red velvet cupcake and white frosting. Next, what color were the balloons? Answer, red, green, and a multicolored mylar balloon. Well, there was a mylar balloon that was several different colors. I don't know what color the one that was popped was because I really couldn't see that. And the other one, I think, was red. Red, purple, and the other was mylar. The balloons. I don't remember the balloons so well. One was kind of gold and the other was kind of green. And then there was one that was uh, burst. And can you describe what James was wearing? Shirt and pants. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Any details? I'm going to say blue jeans. I'm just guessing that. Okay. And what was Noah, the assailant, the, the balloon assailant, what was he wearing? Noah was wearing a red, white, and black plaid shirt over an orange T-shirt and jeans. Couldn't begin to tell you. Clothes. Definitely was wearing clothes. clothes. Yes, otherwise it would have been shocking indeed. <laughs> I would have remembered if it wasn't clothes. No idea. What, no, he was wearing, you know, it's weird. Uh, it looked like something from the First World War. It was some sort of 
over what? Jack, some sort of vest. <laughs> he was wearing a vest. A vest. Okay, a yeah. vest. And uh, what did Noah say when he popped the second balloon? Did he pop a second balloon? It kind of fizzled out, yes. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Noah said, I don't know what got into me today. Yeah, uh, I, you know, he said, he said something about I could have done a better job on that. He said, I don't know what's gotten into me. All right. That's that's actually what he said. Okay. Out of the three witnesses, I think you are probably the best prepared to go into the witness stand, but I don't know that that's saying much. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting, Seth, when you hear how Gary and you and Barb recall the events, there were many details that you all got wrong. How do you explain that? Well... <laughs> Other than having a bad memory, I mean, and, and not paying attention. I get accused of that frequently enough. But I, I think that it's because my concentration was all in the direction of what was, the, what was going on. I was looking at the people. What were their intentions? Why were these people behaving so oddly? Because I, I think I know these people. <laughs> and here I'm seeing, a, I, I thought I was seeing a mean, malevolent streak in somebody that previously was, you know, just a really nice guy. And I, I, that's what I was paying attention to, not what the props look like. Well, kudos to the acting skill of James and Noah, although I have to say that James did not know that the balloon was going to be popped. And Noah did not know that James was told to take Noah's cupcake and squish it onto the Onto the desk. God, you know, this is a very complex plot. Uh, have you ever considered, you know, staging a bank robbery or something? <laughs> we met at nine. We met at eight. I was on time. No, you were late. Ah, yes? I remember it well. We dined with friends. We dined alone. A tenor sang. A baritone. Ah, yes? I remember it well. Well, it is humbling what we think we remember and what we do remember. Our recollections apparently don't play back like a documentary film. And this can be awkward if you're reminiscing over romantic days of yore. But the consequences can be more serious if your recollections are being used as evidence in a criminal trial. Eyewitness testimony can be valuable evidence in a court of law. More than one witness to a crime, along with physical evidence, can determine guilt or innocence. And lawyers want anyone who has seen an assault, watched an assailant run away, or witnessed an auto accident to come forward. But as we've heard, although we're often certain that dramatic events are accurately burned into our consciousness, our eyes and memory can deceive us. Even if we ourselves are the victim of the crime. Ronald Reinstein is a former judge on the Superior Court of Arizona, 22 years on the bench, and now a judicial consultant for the Arizona Supreme Court. Ron, let's begin with a court case where eyewitness testimony was crucial but misleading. Well, you know, the one that, that always resonates with me is one out of North Carolina, and I actually met the exoneree in this case. His name was Dwayne Dale, and he was misidentified by a young girl who was, I believe, 12 years old, who was greatly influenced by her mother in the identification uh, procedure. And Dwayne was 19 at the time. He served 19 years in the North Carolina prison system before he was exonerated by DNA. And it showed the problems with eyewitness identification and memory and the like, and it's a real tragedy. This sounds like a serious crime, 19 years? Uh, was it was a child rape. He, he got life imprisonment in North Carolina, and uh, he was 19 at the time, had no prior convictions or problems with the law at all, and they had no suspect in the case. He was playing basketball in a park, and the mother and the child were happened to be walking by, and the mother felt like he fit the description that the girl had given previously, reported him to the police. They brought him in for a, uh, a lineup, and he was identified. But this was after the child saw him on the basketball court, and uh, there was no other reason other than he looked similar to the person who was the actual perpetrator. So was this just a case of fallible memory in the sense that she misremembered what was happened? Or was it just a case of being heavily influenced by her mother? No, I think it was both. I think that her mother, seeing this person who fit somewhat the description that the child gave and having seen this person in the neighborhood before, it bolstered the child's memory and when the child saw the person not only in, in the park playing basketball, but later in the lineup, it just bolstered the memory that she had in, in her own mind. So this is a serious crime. I mean, you're talking about child rape, 
murder. I mean, is witness testimony so powerful a line of evidence that it can send people to jail without corroborating physical evidence? Well, most of the cases that we see uh, in court have other corroborating evidence, physical evidence and the like. But there are some cases where the only identifying information is the testimony of a witness or the testimony of the victim. And that often can be incorrect based on, you know, various things about people's memory. Well, this was a case where you had a child who was being influenced by her mother. Obviously, she's going to listen to her mother, and she was only 12 years old. Is this a serious problem, say, at the level of, you know, adults testifying in a murder trial? Oh, definitely. I mean, memory is very fragile. It's delicate. It can deteriorate, whether it's a child or or an adult. It can be contaminated by uh, law enforcement as far as any kind of cues that go on during the um, eyewitness identification procedure, be it a show-up or a lineup or a um, photo array. And I think what happens is that people realize that perception is an interpretive process, but not everything that we observe is actually recorded in the mind, and memory is not always a replay. It's not like a video camera. Now, does this surprise you? Because, you know, it's well known that when you witness something where there's a a high degree of emotional involvement, some emotionally charged event, and we're we're talking about emotionally charged events when you're talking about crime or accidents or something like that, that you sort of make a what we think is a photographic memory, a photographic record of what you've seen. And yet you're saying, well, those photographic records are not so photographic. I think that if you ask experts whether the mind and memory is correct when just from observing a traumatic incident, they would say, no, there's a lot of problems. But if you ask the average citizen who make up our jury pool, they think that, yeah, it is like a photographic memory. It's like a video camera. But I think what has to happen is that people take into account the variables that you can't change, such as the lighting at a crime scene, the duration that a witness has to observe what's occurred, the distance that they are from the crime, or in the case what you said about a a traffic accident, or whether there was a weapon involved, whether there was trauma that was involved, whether there was a a cross-racial identification. You look at the witness's age, uh, whether they were on drugs, whether they were on alcohol. So these are all factors that play into impacting somebody's memory. Well, I have to say, Ron, that I was talking to a victim of a, of a theft. Somebody grabbed <laughs> this guy's computer out of his hands on a subway car, and he managed to chase after the, the thief, even tackle him, bring him to the ground, get back his property. And nonetheless, when the police interrogated him and said, now, you know, what did the guy look like? Did he have any scars? Did he have, a, you know, this color hair, that color hair? What was he wearing? This guy couldn't remember any of that. Uh, can you give me some examples of you know, the things that people do notice, if they notice anything? I think people notice the big picture, you know, the gist of what's occurring, but the fine details are often not really uh, stored in in, in memory. It may be, you know, stored somewhere in the back of somebody's mind, but it doesn't come out. You know, there's a, and this happens in in law school classes around the country, a professor brings in somebody who rushes through the the room and yells something or actually has a toy gun and, and pointing it at somebody, and you ask the students in the class, maybe 100, 200 students, and very few of them would be able to tell uh, what the person was wearing accurately or you know, what color hair they had, whether they had a hat on. Maybe that, that would be something. But, the, but they can tell that somebody was running through the room, that somebody had a gun. So it's the, the big picture they can remember, but not the small details. Well, since you've been a judge, you've, you've seen a lot of this, I presume. So how do you deal with it? It sounds like there's a weak point in the judicial system and in assessing guilt or innocence. And, you know, I, I, I can imagine people even go to the chair, who knows, on the basis of witness testimony that could be very faulty. How do you deal with that in the courtroom? Well, I mean, to avoid that now, I think the best procedures are what happens in some of the states that have adopted uh, reforms, such as North Carolina and, and Texas in, in, in particular and New Jersey. You allow the defense to have expert witnesses in particular cases where, you know, maybe eyewitness identification is is the sole piece of evidence in the case, or you provide jury instructions to have jurors think about and consider certain factors that might have impacted the identification in the case. 
But, you know, the vast majority of cases, I think, that the identifications are accurate because there are very few cases where the sole piece of evidence is eyewitness identification. But the ones that do occur, they're dramatic. And usually you hear about them in terms of uh, sexual assault cases or murder cases and, and the like. So, Ron, what about the case where you have multiple witnesses of an event? Are, are there any specific cases where, you know, one sees it one way and the other sees it substantially different? Well, if you've got a traffic accident, for example, I think that there will be multiple witnesses who will have perceived the incident differently. And I've had cases like that being vehicular manslaughter cases or personal injury cases where somebody may estimate the speed at 25 miles an hour, and somebody else may estimate the speed at 50 miles an hour. Somebody may have seen the person run the red light. Another person say, no, it was still green. Or a third person may say that it was on yellow. So you've got these different perceptions that come into court. Now, when you have that, it works very well for the defendant if the state's witnesses or the plaintiff's witnesses don't come together. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, it's really... (laughs) I, I think I would be very happy if I were the defendant to hear the witnesses disagreeing with one another. Yeah, another thing that happens, and, and I think there's been some um, scientific studies on this, is the terminology that's used to witnesses by law enforcement. For example, if you ask a witness what they saw when the cars collided or when they struck each other, it may be a very different perception and testimony of the witness as to speed, for example, than if the officer asks when the two cars crashed at the intersection. So the difference between colliding and striking as opposed to crashing, it changes the person's memory and they'll perceive it as being a higher speed or that they'll see glass was all over the place, whereas somebody else might not say it if you just use the word struck or collide. Well, Ron, finally, what sort of details are reliably conveyed by witnesses? Is there anything where you can say, you know, 99 out of 100 times, you can believe them when they're telling you that? Well, they know that somebody's held a gun on them. They know that somebody's hit them. They know that somebody has uh, run quickly in front of them. But as far as what the details are of the person's face, that can differ whether somebody had a tattoo, whether somebody was Hispanic instead of Caucasian. Those are things that change with perception because perception is an interpretive process and people's expectations can affect the perception. Ronald Reinstein, thank you so much for a memorable conversation. Thank you. After 22 years serving as a judge in the Superior Court of Arizona, Ronald Reinstein is a judicial consultant for the Arizona Supreme Court. Quick, Molly, what do you do if you want to know the capital of Albania or the weight of a pregnant hippopotamus? All together now, Google Google it. (laughs) But what about back in the day when you'd look up such facts in a book or just search your personal memory banks? What's a book? (laughs) I'll tell you later. Has Google made it too easy? I mean, surely our memory abilities are eroding as a result of Internet search, right? Wrong. According to one expert, who is she? Betsy Sparrow. And you have just enough time to look her up before we return. So uh, forget with the program already. It's Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and first let's scratch your itchy cerebellums. If you are wondering what the capital of Albania is, well, picture the country, reach into your memory banks, and... Let's see. Starting on the Black Sea, there's Romania. The capital there is Bucharest. Heading south to Bulgaria, the capital is Sofia. And if you go west to the Adriatic, there's Albania. The capital is Tirana. Or if it's the weight of a pregnant hippopotamus... Take what you know, grab an envelope, a pencil. Let's see. Female hippo from my stint at the River Horse Rodeo is about 1.5 tons. 
Add 3% for the baby, that comes out to 3,090 pounds, or dividing by 2.2 is about 1,400 kilograms. Ah, those were the days. Actually, I just did that a few seconds ago. The days when we relied only on our brains to recall information. We memorized countries, their capitals, their gross national product. Barley, sugar beets, and sunflowers contribute to the $138 billion GNP of the Ukraine. Or called friends, look things up in books. That was the age when our brains, our memories reign supreme. Today... Dear... Wait, who's the producer of Star Trek? Hang on, let me look it up. On Google.com. J.J. Abrams, of course. Okay. Dear J.J. Abrams, I'm a huge fan. Wait, does huge have a D? Hang on. No, okay. Dear J.J. Abrams, I'm a huge fan of Star Trek, and I live in San Francisco. Uh... California, right. I live in San Francisco, California, and I'm writing to request a handshake. Wait, one word or two. Ah, okay. Handshake and or hug from Spock. Preferably Nimoy, but Quinto will do. Please respond to the address below. Wait, what's my address? One, two, now we three, Google it. It. Everything. And that has to be destroying our powers of recall. Think of the days when we sat around the atrium and told oral stories to other Greeks. Hey, here's a good one. It's called the Iliad. But think again, says psychologist Betsy Sparrow, who has studied the Google phenomenon's effect on memory, and it's not hurting one bit. Make that bite. Well, Betsy, there was a time not all that long ago that if I wanted to remember something, say whether the line in Star Trek is long live and prosper or live long and prosper, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'd call up a friend and ask or just wait for another episode to come on television. But what would I do today? Uh, well, now you would just go on your smartphone or go on co- your computer and look it up on, on the Internet, so you would instantly find out the answer to that question. And what is the answer to that question? Do you know? Uh, I think it's live long and prosper. Okay. That's correct. Now, is looking up something on Google any different than my calling a friend and asking? Uh, well, I think it's different in the sense that it's much more immediate, like I said before. And so it's much more apparent to us that we're using it that way. So people worry about that, right? They worry that they're not thinking about the thing that they don't remember at the time. And so they wonder about the consequences for memory in general. Well, I think so, because it feels mindless. Uh, My Mm -hmm. going to the encyclopedia, (laughs) there was a time when encyclopedia was a hard-bound book, or calling up a friend actually seems active, whereas Googling something seems about as passive as you can get. Right. I think it seems that way, but I think the elements that make them the same are much more numerous than the things that make them different. So I remember I asked my husband something about baseball, and then I was telling somebody the story that I asked him about something about baseball, and I couldn't remember the answer he gave me because he's the person who knows about baseball. So I didn't bother to encode it myself because I can always go back to him again. And it does feel so much easier. And so it, it makes people worry, you know, like, oh, well, I, haven't, I, didn't, I didn't put an effort to find this thing. And so therefore, it's going to be detrimental to my um, cognitive function in the future. So one of the ways that you measure the two approaches, whether it was to ask a friend or look it up in a, in a book or in Google, is how strong our power of recall is afterward. Right. So what we did was we had some people learn a bunch of trivia stuff, so stuff that they had never heard before, hopefully most of it they hadn't heard before, and they just typed it into the computer but so that they thought they would have access to it again, just like you would if you looked it up online. And then the other group of people, the comparison group, didn't believe they would have access to it again. And so we compared their memory for the statement afterwards and found that the people who didn't think they'd have access again, so stuff that was, you know, they really had to put inside their own brains to find again, they had better memory for what we taught them than the people who thought they could look it up again. But wouldn't that say something about the corrosive effect of Google and having all this information right at our fingertips is that we don't bother to remember things. We don't engage whatever cognitive function is involved with committing something to memory. Um, right. Because- well, we, I mean, we don't know the full story yet. So, so what we do know is that this kind of thing seems to happen automatically in the sense that some of those same people, we asked them to try to remember it. And it didn't matter whether we asked them to try to remember it or not. They didn't. <laughs> so I think our brains are actually being really efficient and knowing what we need to remember. So let's say you learn some sort of emergency procedure that you have to do. And so you learn that and you wouldn't have time to look it up, you know, if something actually happened. Right. So I think that kind of information would still be there. And, you know, we, we would internalize that. 
the other stuff, like I said, I don't think we ever remembered it. We've always had people in our lives who are like the specialists in certain types of things. Or, you know, we've had our encyclopedias or whatever. So I think each time we've kind of had a revolution like this, like from the oral to the written tradition, you know, and then now from looking things up in books to looking things up on the Internet, I think that worry has been there that we're losing something. For those who are worried about the loss of memory, we're in mm-hmm. good company because Socrates worried about it as well. Right. We had moved from an oral tradition to a written tradition, and he opposed the development of writing because he thought it would replace the act of memorization in our heads and we'd, we would lose something. And you're saying that we haven't lost anything. Well, I'm saying that it's still, it's still unclear what we've lost and what we might have gained. So I'm in the process of doing this research. This is just speculation. I don't know this for sure yet. And I could be completely wrong. But I think that one thing is happening is that we're becoming more specialized, right? Like I was talking about, you know, in our lives, our experts and certain things. So, you know, usually we are as well, right? So, you know, I'm the person people come to when they want to know something psychological, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember those things really well because that's that's one of my roles in life. And now I have access to so much more information than I would have I think if I was a professor 20 years ago, because I can look things up. And then what usually happens is I look up one thing and then I see another headline that, you know how you kind of go down that wormhole a little bit where you look up one thing and then two hours later, you know, you've read six or seven things and suddenly you're reading about theoretical physics or something, you know, so I think we're learning a lot more. So that's one of the things that's been really interesting is that we found that, or it seems to be that people are prioritizing remembering where to find things. And that's the thing that's sufficient to know these days, you know, when you had the Internet so accessible. It's like, where is the best place to go? Where did I find this before? As opposed to remembering the exact details. That's in some ways a more impressive skill. One thing that might also be true, I mean, I just have seen this in my classes, is that once you take away the memorization aspect of it, it might allow like these connections that we've made, even though they're not necessarily explicit and, you know, reportable, it might uh, allow them to be more creative, you know. So you might actually be more intelligent in a way because you're not focusing so much on just the rote memorization aspect. I see. So it's more important to process it and to engage critical thinking than it is just to memorize facts. And, and uh, Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, mm-hmm. I've always valued that much more. Now, on, on the Internet, the benefits of it are that you have the wisdom of many different people adding mm-hmm. to the Internet and so forth and, and building. And looking something up on Google employs something called transactive memory. What is transactive memory? So transactive memory is actually something that my advisor, who was the third author on the paper that we wrote, came up with back in the 70s, I think. He was, I think he was in his kitchen, and he, he needed to find something in the kitchen. And so he, had, he asked his wife where it was. It was a very kind of stereotypical situation. And then he realized that she's the one who's in charge of knowing where things are in the kitchen. And he knows where things are in the garage. And so he started to think about how couples over time or people in work groups over time, without even realizing it, assign themselves roles, right, so that they're the ones who know about certain things. And one of the things that's painful about, let's say, leaving a particular job or, you know, you separate from your spouse or they pass away or something, you know, you, suddenly half of your brain is gone, right? Like that person is was responsible for so, for so many things that you've kind of stopped doing them completely. So it sounds um, like bringing a, gr- a group together like that and... You're creating these departments or compartments in the brain, so yeah. all together you're like one giant brain. Exactly, yeah. And so the, so the idea is that you know what's in their directory, so you know what kinds of things that they know, but you don't know what they know. And so the transactive memory, I started out as an idea that was really about people, and I think it still is. It's just the interface that we have with people is now online. Now, do you think we'll get to the point where we don't bother to remember anything? Um, maybe our names is going too far, but our <laughs> home address, the the books that we like, our favorite tastes in music, all of that, that will just output everything into a computer. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that that switch to episodic memory, so people's personal memories, is automatic. I don't think there's any reason to believe that we wouldn't encode it internally because I mean, all I can imagine is if you had some sort of chip you know, and then you, you plugged into the Internet and everything that happened to you just downloaded someplace. Then the kind of scenario you're talking about, I can imagine. As we come to rely more and more on computers, the scenario one day of us being hooked up directly to our computers is not science fiction for some researchers and from neuroscientists, some neuroscientists envision the day when we will be connected directly to our machines. And I wonder if at that time, what we remember and what the machine remembers will be indistinguishable. 
Um, well, one thing I think that they haven't really figured out in the world of you know artificial intelligence and stuff is emotion. So emotion is so crucial to memory. There's a strange syndrome called Capgras syndrome, for example, where if you uh, you know have a brain injury um, in a certain part of the brain, that it's a connective area between the, your facial memory and the emotion that is connected to the face, right? So let's say you've had a, this this injury, you've had a motorcycle accident or something, and then you see your mother, but you don't get that emotional feeling that you get when you see your mother, and so people think that their their mother has become almost like invasion of the body snatchers has been cloned. <laughs> they don't recognize their own mother. They recognize her, but they think they, they, they're missing the emotional tag, you know, and so they're missing that. And so they're saying, well, this can't possibly be my mother because I'm not feeling the feeling I feel when I see my mother. So that emotion and memory are so entwined with humans that you really need the emotion for the other to function. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's something that, that AI doesn't do very well. Yet. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> and, and finally, Betsy, are you someone who has Post-it notes all over the place? Do you tie string on your finger? Do you have mnemonic devices that you use to remember things when you're not going to Google? Uh, no, I don't really. I, I, I kind of just uh, bumble my way through the world. <laughs> like I said, I'm not, I'm not all that great a memorizer. I mean, I'm pretty good at remembering when I have to do things, so I know, like, the date and the time and everything. Somehow I've always remembered that pretty well. Like, I didn't write down on my calendar that I was doing this today. You know, I just, <laughs> I just knew this was the time, this was the day. Betsy Sparrow, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Betsy Sparrow is a psychologist at Columbia University, which is in, hang on, oh, yeah, New York City. Seth, I know that Betsy says there's no evidence so far that Google is hurting our memory, but when I was growing up, there was a dictionary that was in the other room, this old, really thick dictionary that was out on a table. And when I had to look up a word during school, homework, and so forth, I would walk into the other room and and look it up, and it was a little bit of a ritual. And believe me, when you had to do that, you remembered it. Well, Molly, we had an encyclopedia. You know, it took up 12 feet in the uh, bookcase there. I I think we got it at a supermarket for 25 cents a volume or something. But, you know, it was fun to just go in there and just open it up and learn something, not because you were looking it up on Google. You weren't specifically looking for that information. It was just information, and that was fun. We cannot forget to thank our memorable production staff. Uh, Help me out here. Oh, yeah, the guy with the big red beard, that's Gary Niederhoff. Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Tanya Lewis. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check. Forget with the program. You can find more Big Picture Science and Skeptic Check on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, our page is Big Picture Science, and become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you can't remember to download the podcast, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry Big Picture Science. Okay, so the question is, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck? Given your above-average woodchuck at 3 kilograms, and assuming it consumes 2% of its body weight daily, that's 0.02 kilograms, which times 2.2 is... Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.